0: Hello and welcome back to the latest edition of What in the World is Dyscalculia? This is Dr. Honora Wall and the podcast is hosted by me and presented by EduCalc Learning. At EduCalc Learning, we create training for teachers and parents, interventionists, administrators to better understand the math learning disability, dyscalculia. We also have series of books uh, addressing the needs of neurodiverse students, and we are putting the finishing touches on the first round of online math courses for K-12 students or adults with dyscalculia who want to finally master math. I also have a nonprofit organization, the Dyscalculia Training and Research Institute, that website is org, and that nonprofit is focused on research and getting information to school districts and psychologists uh, and families about this math learning disability. So, in today's podcast, I want to take another look at a leading researcher and discuss their findings. About this issue. I'm recording today's podcast from the University of Victoria in British Columbia. I'm here for a conference of teacher educators, and it's a great organization, fantastic campus. I'm having a really good time. But on my ferry over from Seattle to Victoria, I was so excited to stand out on the back deck of the Clipper Ferry and taken the sights and sounds of my first time being in Canada and loved the experience but it was freezing outside so standing on the back deck before recording a podcast might not have been my smartest choice hopefully my voice is not too scratchy and we can get all this information to you today um let's dive in so the article i want to talk about today was published in Science Magazine and, I'm sure, a few other places. I got the link from Science Magazine, ScienceMag.com, and I'm going to put the full PDF on the DTRI.org blog so you can read this information for yourself. Um, This article was titled, Dyscalculia from Brain to Education, and it was written by Brian Butterworth, one of the all-star... Researchers in this field, Sashank Varma and Diana Lorillard, who also both do a lot of research in dyscalculia. And the basic premise that these researchers uh, take in their work is that there is a core deficit underlying dyscalculia, the same way there's a core deficit underlying dyslexia. I don't know if anyone has looked into Uh, enough of the the reasons behind dysgraphia or dyspraxia to see if they also feel there's a core deficit or not. Uh, Other researchers take a different approach, use a different lens, and we'll talk about those in other podcasts. But for Butterworth and his work, he's looking at a core deficit. So what in the world does that mean? Uh, core, meaning there's one thing we can look for, and then if we can find it, we can learn how to screen for it, recognize it, and address it in the most effective way. Uh, deficit, meaning something that is making a person not be as strong in math as we would think. Uh, not deficit as a problem or as a an issue. Um I want to watch the the wording there. As you know, we are changing the vocabulary. We're stopping a conversation that involves shame or embarrassment for people with learning differences. And that is certainly not at all what these researchers are going with at all. They're using a very specific form of vocabulary for their their research. And that's different than just generic terms. Okay, so what in the world did they say in this article? Um, What are we going on and on about? Well, they definitely talk about dyscalculia having that uh, single core issue in learning math. Um, They mention how dyscalculia can be highly selective, and you can find it usually uh, with people who have normal to above average intelligence, normal working memory. Sometimes you can have issues with visual-spatial skills, but a lot of times... People who have dyscalculia are very good at geometry or they're very good at using a statistics uh, program or other kinds of computer programs. And if we can get past the fear of numbers and the fear of that public failure and embarrassment, then we can use things like Excel programs and we can use a calculator to get the work done faster and handle the numbers part while we handle the problem-solving part. And that's a a really strong area of success for people with dyscalculia. The problem many people run into is that their K-12 math experiences were so negative and their experiences with family members and friends are so negative that they hesitate to use these other programs or do anything that involves math or numbers because they've gotten such negative feedback from people so make sure you are not passing on those negative conversations Uh, if you are a teacher a parent or a spouse be more supportive and understand what your loved one is going through okay so a really interesting piece from this article and um I'm going to quote here. This is a direct quote. These findings imply that arithmetical learning is at least partly based on a cognitive system that is distinct from those underpinning scholastic attainment more generally. End quote. Cognitive system. This is involved in the brain. It's not involved in how many times you used flashcards. It's not involved in how many times you gave that same time test. Please stop doing that. It's not involved with how many times the student paid attention or worked hard or practiced at home. That's not what we're talking about for students with dyscalculia. And this is very different and outside of the scope of the systems that underline uh, generic scholastic success. Again, so we can see success in other areas of education. And our traditional methods of teaching and practicing and learning and recalling are not going to apply to this group. The same way, we can have a conversation about how great cardio is for heart health and how running is a really great method of increasing your cardio. And we can talk about all of the things that make someone a strong runner. That's not going to help people who are using a wheelchair, people who are using leg braces, people who are temporarily or permanently having hip issues or knee issues or shin splints. Now we have different considerations. So we're not going to talk about how to become a faster, better, stronger runner. We're going to talk about other ways to reach that cardiovascular health. So that's really kind of the conversation we need to shift in the world of education. Another key finding from this article is where the researchers talk about how dyscalculia can be a distinct deficit coming from the impairment of mental and neural representation of finger counting. And this goes on to to the coding aspect that some other researchers look into. So it's not like these fields are one or the other. It's not like the lens or the approach is totally different. There's a lot of overlap in our, our understanding, and as I always say, we need a lot more understanding. So if you're a researcher, get involved in this field. Okay, what we what we mean when we're talking about mental and neural, is the way we think about and the way we code in our brain and the way we understand counting and numbers... And we start that through our fingers. That's a, a lot of uh, research in human development before the age of you know, six or seven. Uh, and really very, very early we can see when um, extremely young children, early childhood development. Uh, we can see when babies and, and infants are, are recognizing that they are counting, that they are separating, that they are listing, that they are grouping. And a lot of our initial counting and adding and combining comes from finger counting, which is one of the reasons why a program like Touch Math is really good for people who are increasing their number skills. And it's used a lot in interventions and coaching work. Um, And it's something that we see in older students where they might be counting on their fingers, but they're trying to hide that because now they get to an age in second, third, fourth grade, where it might be helpful for them to count on their fingers, but they don't want other people to know because they're aware that other people are not doing the same thing anymore. So we think that one of the pieces of dyscalculia is that somewhere in that cognitive development, there's a weakness or a lack even of establishing that finger counting and numerosity, what numbers mean. And um, that can be an area of intervention that can potentially increase uh, confidence and skills. Of course, as we get older or outside of the intervention space, when we're looking at classroom activities, the, the pacing is just too fast. We have too much we have to get done in too short a period of time. And then we need to offer students... Other support methods than simply uh, finger counting. We need to move on because they need to move on and we're pushing them and our tools need to reflect that. Uh, one interesting uh, piece in this article, and if you look at the PDF, it'll be online uh, at ddtri.org under our blog. Uh, they had a great graphic that really shows the interaction of the biological, cognitive, and behavioral processes involved in doing math. And those biological pieces and parts that are so key for people with dyscalculia are issues in the parietal lobe. They also interact with the prefrontal cortex, with the occipitotemporal cortex. I, I don't want to get too much into the neurology piece of it, but it's fascinating if you're interested in that. And it's important, even if you're not interested in becoming... Uh, an armchair neurologist, it's important to understand that we're talking about the brain and how different parts of the brain interact and how that parietal lobe can lose information. That makes all the other processes more difficult. Then we have the cognitive piece. So the biological is a little bit more like wiring and neurological connections. The cognitive piece is more about the thinking and reflecting, understanding number symbols and and what they mean. If you look at a written seven, what does that mean in terms of seven blocks, or in terms of multiplying and adding using basic facts? Uh, what are the principles and procedures tied to the vocabulary of a area or perimeter, or volume of a sphere? So there's a lot of different cognitive pieces that go on. And then at the end, we have the behavioral piece of actually completing the number task, doing the arithmetic. Uh, So lots of stuff going on when we're processing math. And with dyscalculia we're finding weaknesses in that biological space and they impact the cognitive space. Those two are kind of tied together with this math learning disability and they impact our behavioral piece of getting the work done. So Lots of information there. What does that mean for the non-researchers listening? Maybe you joined the podcast just because you want to understand dyscalculia and you're trying to help your students. And this was a lot of information that doesn't seem like it's going to help you this afternoon getting through homework or classwork. So here's where the information is important for parents, teachers, and administrators. If we are going to help students with dyscalculia succeed then we have to understand what's in their way. We cannot help people until we understand what it is that they're going through. And this um, reminds me of a a conversation in a thread I saw in an online math group um, recently, and I won't call the, the people or the group out, but it's a whole bunch of math teachers. And the conversation was about the importance of memorization and those basic facts and having that that math fluency. And uh, the conversation kept reverting back to the best ways to memorize. And all the memorizing in the world is not going to do anyone a bit of good if their parietal lobe takes what they memorized and basically dumps it in the trash. It's like an overzealous uh, cleaning crew that gets rid of math information that's already been learned Uh, so when we have a mindset that memorizing basic basic facts is key to math success and we get stuck there then we're not going to be able to help people who can memorize and forget memorize and lose information memorize and be really close Uh, let's see, 7 times 6, is that 43, is it 39, no, it's somewhere around there. That kind of thinking and that kind of retrieval that's taking time is not going to help build confidence or fluency or the automaticity that we're looking for. And that's why I strongly encourage you to use 1 to 100's charts. Program of letting students count on their fingers, playing games to increase uh, the the numerosity under ten. So, for example, there's some computer programs you can use um, that are designed to help strengthen estimation, looking at a set of objects and figuring out how many are in the set. Using manipulatives in the classroom, like the rods or the the graphics. See if those work for your students, if there are any visual-spatial issues, or if they're just not connecting the image or the rod to numbers and place value. You're going to have to see on a case-by-case basis what's working for your student and what is not. You can also play games with cards or with dice where you're trying to combine to ten. So if you have a three card, does someone else have a seven? All right, now you can make 10. If one person rolls a 4, can the other person roll dice and get a 6? Now you've made a 10. Uh, Doing different combinations like that, but stick to those smaller numbers because we want to strengthen the foundation, and that will lend itself to doing the same kind of work with higher numbers. Uh, We build a house from the foundation, not from the second floor. But again, because the research in this area is still lighter than we need it to be, uh, we are doing a lot of trying it for ourselves. So teachers and parents trying to help at home, keep trying different things. You're going to find what works best for your student. If you're an adult or a student listening and you're trying to feel better about numbers and increase your math confidence, try a bunch of different things. And keep going until you find the thing that works best for you, that's more enjoyable, that you're going to stick with it, that it's making a difference. And be open to that idea. Same way, if we go back to our heart-healthy cardio analogy, the best kind of exercise to do is the kind you're going to do regularly. Because consistency is what makes a real difference. And uh, we're going to do the same thing in our approach to increasing math confidence and math success. We're going to find whatever is best for the individual, and we're going to keep doing that consistently so that we can increase our mastery. I think that's plenty enough talk uh, uh, for this podcast. If you are interested in this article by Drs. Butterworth, Varma, and Lard called Dyscalculia from Brain to Education, of course, you can look it up uh, anywhere online. I found it at sciencemag.com. You can also go to the blog page on www.thedtri.org and I'll have a link to the PDF there. This is Dr. Honora Wall and I thank you for listening to What in the World is Dyscalculia? If you have any questions or comments for me, please email me, honora, H-O-N-O-R-A, at EduCalcLearning.com or Honora at the D-T-R-I.org. If you found us on YouTube, we've just put our podcast up on YouTube as well as a bunch of different podcast sites. Please subscribe and like and follow us in our different places so that we can increase our reach and our expansion of awareness of dyscalculia. And if you have any future podcast topics you'd like to hear about, reach out. I'll be happy to include them. Thank you for listening to What in the World is Dyscalculia, and we'll talk more next time.